it is unbelievable the things going on in our world. And I have to say, I'm excited about this series of messages. And let me tell you about our journey. We're going to start tonight on May 14, 1948, with the rebirth of the nation of Israel. We're going to move next week to the last season of church history, the last of the last years of the church. Well, the last of the last years of the church is brought to a closure by the rapture of the church. And that will be our topic the following week. Well, then we're going to move in to the tribulation period of the time of Jacob's trouble. We'll have a message about the millennium after that, the second coming and the millennium. And then we will finish our series with a message about the great white throne judgment and eternity. So six messages in this series, and I'm excited about uh, getting into it tonight. Now, as we said, and by the way, if you'd like to read ahead on Sunday, it's uh, Ephesians 3, 14 to 21 uh, will be our text for Sunday morning. Now, <clears throat> we live in an incredible time in history. It's not just weird <laughs> and crazy, but it's amazing. It's an amazing time to be alive. And as I was preparing for this series, I couldn't help but think how many hundreds of millions of Christians lived without seeing any of the things that we're seeing and how they did so for literally millennia. Things like what was recorded that would cause some to ponder, some to even long for, some to make sense of. All the way back in Deuteronomy 4, 25 to 30, I've got a bunch of scriptures for you tonight. We're not going to uh, examine a passage like we normally do. We'll get uh, to that next week uh, in our message about the end of the church age. But the first thing to take note of tonight is all the way back in Deuteronomy 4, 25 to 30, where the Lord says to his nation, when you beget children again, grandchildren, and have grown old in the land and act corruptly and make a carved image in the form of anything and do evil in the sight of the Lord your God to provoke him to anger. I call heaven and earth as witness against you to this, uh, this day that you will soon utterly perish from the land which you cross over the Jordan to possess. You will not prolong your days in it, but will be utterly destroyed. And the Lord will scatter you among the peoples and you will be left few in number among the nations where the Lord will drive you. And there you will serve gods, the work of men's hands, wood and stone, which neither see nor hear nor eat nor smell. Now, all of the church history looked back on this and saw these things come to pass in the nation of Israel. But here's where our privilege position comes in because of our relationship to the end of the church age. But from there, from your scatterings all over the earth, you will seek the Lord your God and you will find him if you seek him with all your heart and with all your soul. When you are in distress and all these things come upon you, when? In the latter days. When you turn to the Lord your God and obey his voice, for the Lord your God is a merciful God. He will not forsake you nor destroy you, nor forget the covenant of your fathers, which he swore to them. Now these words were written about 1400 B.C., they were written 3,400 years ago at the end of the wilderness wanderings of the Israelites. And according to the book of Hebrews, an entire generation died in the wilderness because of their unbelief. Now, some 800 years later, Jerusalem was destroyed by the marauding Babylonians and the people were carried away captive to Babylon, where in Babylon there were men like Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, 
Azariah, you probably know them as Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, but that's their Babylonian names. I gave you their Hebrew names. Those men there called on the name of the Lord during their captivity. And it was during the Babylonian captivity that the time of the Gentiles began that has now lasted over 2,500 years. Billions of people have lived and died in these last 3,400 years, and the same could be said of the last 2,500 plus years of Gentile domination of the world. But there's a change coming. And in Ezekiel 37, 21 to 23, the Lord said to the prophets, say to them, thus says the Lord God, Surely I will take the children of Israel from among the nations, wherever they have gone, and I will gather them from every side and bring them into their own land. And I will make them one nation in the land on the mountains of Israel, and one king shall be king over them all. They shall no longer be two nations, a divided kingdom, nor shall they ever be divided into two kingdoms again. They shall not defile themselves anymore with their idols, nor with their detestable things, nor with any of their transgressions, but I will deliver them from all of their dwelling places in which they have what? Sinned Sin and will cleanse them. Then they shall be my people and I will be their God. Listen, the church has been waiting a long time for the rapture. Amen. Right? Amen. Don't we wait for that every day? Yeah. Don't we long for that every day? Don't we wish every day when we get up that it was today? Yeah. And some scoff because it's taken so long, according to 2 Peter 3.3. 3. There are scoffers in the last days, which is an indication that we're in the last days. And there are a flurry of rapture deniers in the generation that is closest to it. Yes. We should live every day expecting it to be the day. We should always have our eyes fixed upward. Amen? Amen? But the same is true of Jeremiah and Ezekiel prophecies about bringing God's people scattered across the globe from the four corners of the earth back into their national homeland. Because it took so long, some came to the conclusion that God cast them off forever. Others said, well, the church has actually replaced them. Even though the Lord said in the latter days, which is the time that we now live, he will not forsake them. He will not destroy them. He will honor the promises he made to their fathers, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob or Israel. Now, at the end of the prophet Isaiah, he writes this in 66, 8. Who has heard such a thing? Who has seen such things? Shall the earth be made to give birth in one day? Or shall a nation be born at once, or all of a sudden? For as soon as Zion was in labor, when the time came, she gave birth to her children. And listen, according to the calendar in Israel, on May 15, 1948, 14th on our calendar, or according to our time zone, the British mandate over Palestine ended. On that same day, five neighboring Arab states invaded the brand new, fresh out of the womb, so to speak, infant nation of Israel. They declared their independence earlier on the same day, and the invasion was heralded by an Egyptian air attack on Tel Aviv. It was resisted, obviously, uh, with the meager supply that the Jews had. They were attacked from the north, from the east, and the south by the armies of Lebanon, Syria, Iraq, Transjordan, and Egypt. The invading forces were fully equipped 
with standard weapons of the regular army of the time, artillery, tanks, armored cars, personnel carriers, machine guns, mortars, small arms in great quantities, full supplies of ammunition, oil, and gasoline. Further, Egypt, Iraq, and Syria had air forces. As sovereign states, they had no difficulty uh, in securing whatever armaments they needed through the normal channels from Britain and other friendly powers. And in contrast, the Jews had no artillery. They had nothing that could match it. They had no tanks, and they had no warplanes in the first days of the war. Some supplies arrived in the days that followed, however, and the tide was turned, but it wasn't by the weapons that the tide turned. They had a few small arms, and these things had been made available to the predecessor of the IDF, called the Haganah, and on May 28, 1948, the Israel defense forces were born from the Jewish defense groups. They were invaded from all directions. They had to cope with the outbreak of over a thousand fires. And numerous settlement outposts in the Galilee and the Negev were isolated, open from every side to Arab attacks. And they had to rely on their own colony, so to speak, or community to persevere with the meager supplies that they had to stave off the uh, defeat. Well, who won? Israel. Well, we can say Israel won. God won. Since then, Israel has lived in complete quiet and peace. 1956, there was the Suez-Sinai campaign. 1967 was the Six-Day War. 1967 to 1970 was the War of Attrition. 1973 was the Yom Kippur War. 1982 to 85 was the First Lebanon War. 1988 to 92 was the First Intifada. 2002 was Operation Defensive Shield in response to attacks from the West Bank. 2000 to 2005 was the Palestinian War when in 2005 Israel gave possession over to the Palestinians of the Gaza Strip. In 2006 there was a second Lebanon war. In 2008 to 2009, there was Operation Cast Lead, war with Gaza. In 2012, there was Operation Pillar of Defense because of rocket fire coming in from the Gaza. 2014 was Operation Protective Edge, again, rocket fire from the Gaza. And this year, we just saw an 11-day exchange called Operation Guardian of the Walls, again, in response to over 4,000 rockets fired from the Gaza Strip into sovereign Israeli territory. Thousands of acres of land, forests, and crops have been scorched by incendiary balloon attacks. Hundreds of isolated rockets have been fired into Israel. Israeli Jews have suffered knife attacks, shootings, car ramming attacks, and on and on and on it goes all over the nation of Israel. Now, here's what I find fascinating. The surface of the earth is 197 million square miles. 57.5 million miles uh, makes uh, up the land mass of the earth. That's less than 30% of the earth is actually land mass. Of the 57.5 million miles of land mass, 8,800 square miles of that is the nation of Israel. And within the nation of Israel, there are 70 miles that make up the boundaries of Jerusalem. And within Jerusalem, there are 35 acres that are going to wind up being the focal point of the whole planet of some 197 million square miles. 35 acres will be the point of world attention. It's a place called the Temple Mount. What city on the planet draws more international concern than any other? Jerusalem. Jerusalem. 70 square miles of rock and sand. No oil. There's no gold in the soil. There's no seaport. 
And on a planet of 7.846 billion people, 9 million people live in Israel, 7 million of them being Jews. And of Israel's Jewish population today, 88% of them were born in Israel. So why is this small piece of land, this tiny segment of the global population, the center of world attention, and by most world leaders' assessment, the greatest hindrance to world peace in the world. Why does Jerusalem carry that particular reputation in the international community? Because Zechariah 12.3 says it shall happen in that day that I will make Jerusalem a very heavy stone for all peoples. All who would heave it away will surely be cut into pieces. If you need me to uh, paraphrase that for you, that's bad. <laughs> mess with the Jerusalem and God's going to mess with you. Amen? Amen? Though all the nations of the earth are gathered against it, that's why Jerusalem is the focal point of the world. The world views Israel the way they do because God is preparing Israel for the 70th week of Daniel. A time where he's going to fight against the nations of the world that surround and gather against Israel the way he fights, is the way he describes it in Zechariah 14. The way he fights in the day of battle, which will result in the saving of all Israel, as Paul said in the book of Romans. Now in Zechariah 12.10, the Lord says, And I will speak, or I will pour on the house of David and on the inhabitants of Jerusalem the spirit of grace and supplication. Then they will look on me whom they pierced. Yes, they will mourn for him as one mourns for his only son and grieve for him as one grieves for a firstborn. This is where things are headed as it relates to the nation of Israel. And thus our title tonight is Israel Born in a Day. And our goal tonight is to establish beyond question that modern Israel is biblical Israel. And why it is important that we believe it. So, now that we're halfway through the introduction, <laughs> let's pray. Father, we are thankful for our time together tonight. We ask your blessing on not just tonight, but all that is said uh, in this room and the others here who are speaking of Jesus uh, to young and old God. We pray, Lord, that your word would go out with authority and the power that it has. And Lord, that we in our minds would be fully convinced of truth. And Lord, we would see uh, Israel's role in your plan for the last of the last days. Speak to us and give us clarity, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Now, I want to give you three indisputable proofs tonight that modern Israel is biblical Israel and why we should believe it and support the nation. Now, here's the first. Listen, modern Israel is a prophetic necessity. The first thing we need to understand is that modern Israel is a prophetic necessity. Now, there are those who are anti-Zionist or replacement theologists who say that Israel has no role in God's plan and purposes today, and the modern state of Israel has nothing to do with biblical Israel, and they simply deny uh, and basically label the uh, Jewish Israelis as occupiers. But here's the one thing I think we need to highlight. If God was finished with the nation of Israel, there wouldn't be one. When he's finished with you, you're finished. And he finished off all the other peoples that attacked the Israelites in time past. When's the last time you ran into a Girgashite? Because there aren't any, right? And if God was done with Israel, there wouldn't be a nation of Israel. Otherwise, listen, what would be the point of modern Israel existing? 
If it's a nation that God has cast off, a people that he has separated from his land, did he bring the Jews back to the land so Christians could be tourists? No. <laughs> I don't think so. And one thing I think we need to remember, going to Israel is a wonderful trip. Going to the New Jerusalem is even better. And we're all going to be there someday. Amen? Amen. Now, the prophet Amos said this in 9, 14 and 15. The Lord says, I will bring back the captives of my people Israel. They shall build the waste cities and inhabit them. They shall plant vineyards and drink wine from them. They shall also make gardens and eat fruit from them. I will plant them in their land and no longer shall they be pulled up from the land that I have given them. Says who? The Says the Lord your God. Pulled up from the land can also be translated as uprooted. Once the Jews are back in the land, they're never going to be uprooted. I don't care what the United Nothing says. It makes no difference what the international community tries to do. So let's ask some questions based on what Amos says. Has Israel rebuilt and inhabited cities out of a wasteland? Yes. Absolutely they have. Have they planted vineyards and have their own wineries? Yes, there's over 35 commercial wineries in Israel and over 250 boutique wineries or just a, a sole proprietor type of thing. Are they a fruit-producing nation? Yes. Israel exports $1.3 billion of fruit every year, mostly citrus. They are one of the leading greenhouse fruit producers in the world, 8,800 square miles. And they're one of the leading fruit producers within a greenhouse in the world. Now listen, here's one of the other questions I have to ask of the anti-Zionists and the replacement theologists. If modern Israel is not biblical Israel, then why is everything that was written about biblical Israel happening to modern Israel? Right. I mean, I couldn't hardly even say that. I don't know if you even <laughs> understood it, but listen, if modern Israel is not biblical Israel, then why is everything that was written about biblical Israel happening to modern Israel? Because modern Israel is the Israel of the Bible. The Lord said through Amos that when he brings the Jews back in the land, they will never be uprooted from it. Well, they're back in the land. They built cities. They planted vineyards. They're growing fruit. You know what these are? They are fulfilled prophecies. Yes. Modern Israel is a prophetic necessity. Now we also know that whatever God says, Satan opposes. Yes. Right? Yes. At its rebirth in 1948, the nation of Israel, as we read earlier, was invaded by five armies that, that uh, proclaimed a jihad and vowed to destroy Israel and shed every drop of their own blood, if it was necessary, to destroy Israel and all the Jews. At this time, Israel, as we said earlier, didn't own one tank or cannon. They had nine outdated aircraft eventually. And yet the five armies of Lebanon, Syria, Iraq, Jordan, and Egypt were repelled by Israel and the infant nation survived and even began to thrive. Then looking at the Six-Day War of 1967, President Nasser of Egypt announced, the armies of Egypt, Jordan, Syria, and Lebanon are poised on the borders of Israel. To face the challenge while standing behind us are the armies of Iraq, Algeria, Kuwait, Sudan, and the whole Arab nation. This act will astound the world, and indeed it did. Today they will know that the Arabs are arranged for battle. The critical hour has arrived. We have reached the stage of serious action and not declarations. In other words, diplomacy has run its course. President Abdur Rahman Aref of Iraq joined in this war of words and said this, and I quote, the existence of Israel is an error which must be rectified. This is our opportunity to wipe out the 
ignominy which has been with us since 1948. Our goal is clear, to wipe Israel off the map. And on June 4th, Iraq joined the military alliance with Egypt, Jordan, and Syria. This Arab rhetoric was matched by the mobilization of Arab forces. Listen, 250,000 troops, nearly half of them stationed in the Sinai. More than 2,000 tanks and 700 aircraft surrounded Israel. Yet again outnumbered, yet again outarmed, yet again surrounded. In six days, in the face of seemingly insurmountable odds, uh, Israel was victorious and Jerusalem was taken. Hmm. On October 6, 1973, on Yom Kippur, the holiest day of the Jewish calendar, Egypt and Syria opened a coordinated surprise attack against Israel. Approximately 180 Israeli tanks faced an onslaught, listen, 180 Israeli tanks fought, faced an onslaught of 1,200 Syrian tanks. For, I'm sorry, 1,400 Syrian tanks. And all these placed along the Suez Canal where fewer than 500, get this again, 500 Israeli soldiers were attacked by 80,000 Egyptian soldiers. Who won that battle again? Now, the victor of the Yom Kippur War was God. And listen, if modern Israel is not biblical Israel, then why is the God of the Bible protecting them? Why does he have his hand over them? Listen, they can have the Iron Dome and all those wonderful technologically advanced weapons, but the hand of God is what is keeping them safe because they are not going to be uprooted from the land because God's word says so. And it doesn't matter how many nations gather against them, they are the Israel of the Bible. I heard an interesting uh, story that there was a, because they attacked on Yom Kippur, there was a tank commander who came across the border in Syria, made his way down the Golan Heights with a whole group of tanks behind him. And they came close to uh, one of the kibbutzes over there and, and everybody, because it was Yom Kippur, they were silent. So they'd made their way into Israeli territory. They were in firing or striking distance and the guy got scared because there was nobody opposing them. So he turned his tank brigade around and went back to Syria. And so his commander says, what are you doing back here? Well, they freaked us out. They were hiding. They knew we were there. He never saw anybody. And uh, my understanding is that was his last battle because it was his last day on the planet. So now, listen, we know that there's another assault coming on the land of Israel from a group of nations named specifically in the book of Ezekiel. Uh, some would argue it's going to be headed by uh, Russia. I think there's other possibilities there, but we know for sure that uh, Turkey is going to be involved. We know the Iranians or the Persians are going to be involved. We know that the Sudan will be involved, and we also know that Libya is going to be involved. Now, when you read some uh, text, it's going to mention Ethiopia. You need to understand that Ethiopia in Old Testament times is simply the area south of Egypt. It doesn't mean the modern nation of Ethiopia. That's what that region was called, which in our day is occupied by uh, Sudan. So what's going to happen in this Ezekiel war? Well, what happened in 48? Yeah. What happened in 67? What happened in 73? What happened in 2021 when the rapture happened? And I don't know if the rapture is going to happen. I just wish it would, don't you? Yes. Now, here's what's going to happen. Ezekiel 38, 19 to 23, the Lord says, For in my jealousy and in the fire of my wrath I have spoken, 
Surely in that day, in that day where these nations attack, there will be a great earthquake in the land of Israel, so that the fish of the sea, the birds of the heavens, the beasts of the field, all creeping things that creep on the earth, and all men who are on the face of the earth shall shake in my presence. The mountains shall be thrown down. The steep places shall fall. Every wall will fall to the ground. I will call for a sword against Gog throughout all my mountains or throughout the whole of Israel. Says the Lord God, every man's sword will be against his brother and I will bring him to judgment with pestilence and bloodshed. I will rain down on him, on his troops and on many peoples who are with him. Flooding rain, great hailstones, fire and brimstone. Thus I will magnify myself and sanctify myself and I will be known in the eyes of many nations. Then they shall know that I am the Lord. God's going to fight on Israel's behalf. Personally, I believe the Ezekiel War scenario takes place. It may begin before the rapture. The rapture happens in the middle of it. And then God intervenes because we see very tribulation-like uh, response from heaven in dealing with the invading forces that we don't see now. Listen, if there was ever a time for great hailstones, fire, and brimstone, it was when the Nazis were killing Jews in the ovens, yeah. right? But we weren't in that particular season of history. God is going to fulfill the 70th week of Daniel. He is going to defend his chosen people. And we'll talk about uh, the purposes of the tribulation when we arrive in our study of it. I was going to say when we arrive there, but we're not going to arrive there. Amen. Amen. Now, how do we know modern Israel is biblical Israel? The prophecies concerning the nation have and are being fulfilled. And once they are back in the land, they will never be uprooted from it again. Although the nations of the earth are gathered against it. Because modern Israel is a prophetic necessity. Now, here's the second reason, and it pairs with that, as to why biblical or modern Israel is biblical uh, Israel and important and even a prophetic necessity. Listen, modern Israel is essential to the integrity of Scripture. Modern Israel is essential to the integrity of Scripture. Now, that might seem like a pretty bold statement or a hyperbole, but think about this. All the way back in Genesis 17, 7 and 8, God said, I will establish my covenant between me and you and your descendants after you in their generations for an everlasting covenant. To be God to you and your descendants after you, God would later explain his circumcised descendants, those who came through Jacob, not Ishmael. Also, I give to you, your descendants, after you, the land in which you are a stranger, all the land of Canaan, as an, what's the next word? Everlasting. Everlasting possession, and I will be their God. Now, the word everlasting means? Everlasting. Lasts forever. Eternal. Everlasting. Without end. And if God has cast off his chosen people, Israel, and they have no right to their national homeland, as the replacement theologists and anti-Zionists say, and therefore modern Israel is not biblical Israel, then that means everlasting doesn't mean everlasting. It means that everlasting doesn't mean eternal. And if everlasting doesn't mean eternal, in Genesis, what do we do with this? For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. And whosoever believes in him should not perish, but have what? Everlasting life. Listen, in the Greek translation of the Old Testament, the Septuagint, Genesis 17, 7 and 8, that we just read a moment ago, uses the same Greek word as John 3, 16 for the word everlasting. And why that's important is because if everlasting doesn't mean eternal in Genesis 17, it doesn't mean eternal in John 3, 16. Amen. And that's a problem. 
Right? right? Now listen to Jeremiah 31, 31 to 17. We've got some long reads tonight, but we have to. Behold, the days are coming, says the Lord, indicates a future event, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah, not according to the covenant that I made with their fathers in the day that I took them by the hand to lead them out of the land of Egypt, my covenant which they broke, though I was a husband to them, says the Lord, but this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, says the Lord. I will put my law in their minds and write it on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. No more shall every man teach his neighbor, and every man his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me. From the least of them to the greatest of them, says the Lord. For I will forgive their iniquity, and their sin I will remember no more. Thus says the Lord, who gives the sun for a light by day, the ordinance of the moon and the stars for a light by night, who disturbs the sea and its waves roar, the Lord of armies is his name. If those ordinances depart from before me, says the Lord, then the seed of Israel shall also cease from being a nation before me forever. Thus says the Lord, if heaven and earth, uh, heaven above can be measured and the foundations of the earth searched out beneath, I will, all, I will also cast off the seed of Israel for all they have done, says the Lord. Now, for those who say the Jews forfeited their place in God's plan because of their sin, here the Lord acknowledges their sin, just like he does ours. But he also remembers his everlasting covenant. And he illustrates his commitment to his covenant using the ordinances established as creation as witness and the vastness of the expanding universe as to the nature of his covenant with the Jews and their land. And listen, if modern Israel is not biblical Israel, then Jeremiah was wrong. And if Jeremiah was wrong, then the Bible contains serious errors. And if the Bible contains serious errors, who's to say that John 3.16 is not one of them? Hello? And that everlasting doesn't mean lasts forever. Now, Daniel 9, 24 to 27, 70 weeks, Daniel is told, are determined for your people and your holy city. What are Daniel's people? Who are Daniel's people? Jews. What is Daniel's holy city? Jerusalem. Jerusalem. To finish the transgression, to make an end of sins, to make reconciliation for iniquity, to bring in everlasting righteousness, to seal up vision and prophecy, and to anoint the most holy. Know therefore and understand that from the going forth of the command to restore and build Jerusalem until Messiah the Prince, that's Jesus, there shall be seven weeks and 62 weeks. The street shall be built again and the wall, read Nehemiah to see that, even in troublesome times. And after the 62 weeks, Messiah shall be cut off, meaning killed, but not for himself. Did Jesus die for his own sins? He died for ours, right? Now, he was cut off enough for himself, and the people of the prince who is to come shall destroy the city and the sanctuary. The end of it shall be with a flood until the end of the war desolations are determined. Then he shall confirm a covenant with many for one week, the 70th week of Daniel. But in the middle of the week, he shall bring an end to sacrifice and offering. And on the wing of abomination shall be one who makes desolate even the consummation, which is determined is poured out on the desolate. In other words, Israel is going to have a hard time throughout their history. Have they? Yes. yes. And listen, if Israel has lost its place in the redemptive plan of God, there is no reconciliation for their iniquities, yet God said he was going to. He said he was going to have mercy on them. And listen, if the book of Revelation is allegorical and, liter and not literal, if Daniel is strictly historic and none of it's prophetic, then when was the 70th week of Daniel fulfilled? Yeah. 
When did all that happen? When was there a covenant made, a seven-year covenant made, that was later broken halfway through by the Antichrist? When did that happen? I mean, that would certainly be a historically documented uh, event, don't you think? Yeah. But yet it didn't happen. Now, in the first 69, or if the first 69 seven-year periods were literal seven-year periods, then the 70th week of Daniel has to be a literal seven-year period. And Daniel was told 70 weeks are determined for your people, who are the? And your holy city, which is? Jerusalem. So if the first 69 weeks were pertaining to the Jews in Jerusalem, week 70 has to be pertaining to the Jews in Jerusalem. So since the Jews were scattered all over the world, don't they have to come back to Jerusalem in order to fulfill the 70th week? And listen, another argument, it couldn't have been fulfilled in 70 AD as the preterists would teach under Titus when Jerusalem was destroyed because there was no seven-year covenant made with Daniel's people and city. And the city was destroyed. Nor were there wars and rumors of wars. Nor was, there rampant, nor was there rampant pestilence. There wasn't international strife. There weren't global ethnic tensions and major geological and cosmological events that Jesus said were going to be happening in Matthew 24, 3-8. And then in Zechariah 12, 7 and 9, we're told the Lord will save the tents of Judah first so that the glory of the house of David and the glory of the inhabitants of Jerusalem shall not be greater than that of Judah. In that day, the Lord will defend the inhabitants of Jerusalem. The one who is feeble among them in that day shall be like David. And the house of David shall be like God, like the angel of the Lord before them. It shall be in that day that I will seek to destroy all the nations that come against Jerusalem. Jerusalem. In that day is a phrase associated in Zechariah 16 times in chapter 12 to 14 with the 70th week of Daniel or the tribulation period. Now, when did the Lord destroy all the nations that came against Jerusalem in history? Did that happen? No, it hasn't happened. And Zechariah 14, 12 also tells us, this shall be the plague with which the Lord will strike all the people who fought against Jerusalem. Their flesh shall dissolve while they stand on their feet. Their eyes shall dissolve in their sockets, and their tongue shall dissolve in their mouths. Remember all the pictures of that? No, I haven't seen any either. Why? Because it hasn't happened. Zechariah 12 to 14, as I said, are all in reference to the 70th week of Daniel, and there is no historic event that even closely parallels what Zechariah describes there in 14:12. Now, I think we made the point that if God has cast off Israel, then there are promises that were presented as everlasting that didn't get fulfilled, right? right. And they were actually temporary and conditional when God said they would last forever. In other words, there were events foretold that never happened. And if, listen, if there were events foretold in the Bible that never happened and should have happened, then the Bible is not true. But the Bible is true. Amen. And the replacement theologists and anti-Zionists are the ones that are wrong. Yes. And modern Israel is biblical Israel. And it has to be so for the sake of biblical integrity. In Romans 1, 2, uh, Romans 11, rather, 1 and the first part of 2, Paul says, I say then, has God cast away his people? Certainly not. For I also am an Israelite, the seed of Abraham, of the tribe of Benjamin. God has not cast away his people whom he foreknew. Now, our final point comes in the form of a question. Questions demand answers. Yes. Yes. Right? Yes. And we have to ask, if God has cast off Israel, if modern Israel is not biblical Israel, 
if the Jews are actually occupiers who are dwelling in land that rightfully belongs to Arab Muslims, then we have to ask this question. Why is Jesus returning to the Mount of Olives in Jerusalem? Right. Why is Jesus coming back to Jerusalem if Jerusalem has nothing to do with the biblical scenario? Why would he come back to Arab lands? Why would he come back to a place that Islam calls Al-Quds or Al-Quds? Listen, Jews are what makes a Jerusalem possible because the Muslims don't call it Jerusalem. Everything they refer to regarding Jerusalem is about the catastrophe when the Jews took it over as their rightful eternal capital uh, given to them by God. Now, in Zechariah 14, 16 to 17, we're told, It shall come to pass that everyone who is left of all the nations which came against Jerusalem shall go up from year to year to worship the King, the Lord of hosts. Now we're in the millennium. And to keep the Feast of Tabernacles. And it shall be that whichever of the families of the earth do not come up to Jerusalem to worship the King, the Lord of hosts, on them there will be no rain. Now, why would Jesus come back to Jerusalem, reign from Jerusalem, require nations to go to Jerusalem during the millennium if he has broken the everlasting covenant he made with his people and land and modern Israel has nothing to do with the Israel of the Bible. And listen, if modern Israel is not biblical Israel and Jerusalem is not the eternal capital of Israel, then why is the city whose builder and maker is God called the New Jerusalem? Why would God continue using that particular name for a city if that city was cast off from him forever and the people that he apportioned that particular part of land to? Why would God make an eternal association with the people and land he's cast off? Does that make any sense? No, we're not as smart as God, but we can figure that one out. Now listen to what the resurrected Lord said to his disciples when after he was resurrected, he suddenly appeared to them. He said in Luke 24, 44 to 49, These are the words which I spoke to you while I was still with you, that all things must be fulfilled which were written in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms concerning me. And he opened their understanding that they might comprehend the scriptures. Then he said to them, thus it is written, and thus it was necessary for the Christ to suffer and rise again from the, uh, rise from the dead on the third day, and that repentance and remission of sins should be preached in his name to all nations, beginning where? Jerusalem. At Jerusalem. And you are witnesses of these things. Behold, I send the promise of my Father upon you, but tarry in the city of Jerusalem until you are endued with power from on high. Jesus said it was necessary for the Christ to suffer and to rise on the third day and that repentance and remission of sins be preached all over the world. But he told them, start where? Jerusalem. Jerusalem. Now, he told them to start in Daniel's holy city. He told them to start with their preaching to Daniel's people, the Jews and obviously Jerusalem. Now, Listen, there's a lot of eschatological interpretations that bring no harm to the integrity or infallibility of Scripture. But replacement theology is not one of them. That's right. Replacement theology is heresy. That's right. replacement, listen, replacement theology is blasphemy. That's right. Because the word blasphemy means to determine as evil. And if the word of God is not true, then God's a liar. 
and lying is evil. But God is not a liar. Let God be true and every man a liar. Amen. Amen. And what he said is going to happen is, is, is happening exactly as he foretold. And the final season of the time of the Gentiles began on May 14, 1948. And we can say that because the association with the regathering of the Jews in the 70th week of Daniel is indisputable. They were regathered from the nations where God scattered them for the purpose of preparing them for the time of the end. When? Because of the events and actions of God during the tribulation, they're finally going to look on him whom they pierced and mourn their grievous error. And we'll examine this in detail next month. But Hebrews 8, 10 to 12 also reminds us that this is the covenant that I will make of the house of Israel in those days, says the Lord. I will put, as we read earlier, I'll put my laws in their minds and write them on their hearts. I will be their God. They shall be my people. None of them shall teach his neighbor. None his brother saying, know the Lord, for they shall all know me. Did that happen when Jesus came the first time? No, not at all. From the least to the greatest to them, he said, I'll be merciful to their unrighteousness and their sins and their lawless deeds. I will remember no more. Now listen, everlasting means everlasting. It lasts forever. And eternal is the duration of God's covenant with the descendants of Abraham through Isaac and Jacob and the land formerly known as the land of Canaan that he gave to them. And because of the tribulation and God's defense of Jerusalem during it, they will come to know the Lord who is the Holy One of Israel as their Savior and thus all Israel is going to be saved. You see, Israel was a nation, as Isaiah asked the question, that was born in a day. It all happened like that. There had been things that pointed to it, led to it, all the way back uh, starting in World War I. The Jews actually started returning to their national homeland in 1890. That's when the uh, Aliyahs actually began, when they began to head back home. God was calling them home, and eventually, uh, within a little over half a century, uh, they had a land that they call very proudly the nation of Israel. But you know, one thing you and I need to remember is that with the rebirth of the nation of Israel, we are nearing the end of the time of the Gentiles. And within the time of the Gentiles is the church age. All of it. Because the church age has to end for the 70th week of Daniel to begin. And God is going to begin to deal with them directly and next week we're going to be talking about something that's a bit controversial you know I usually stay away from that <laughs> but we're going to talk about the church of the last days and personally and I'll explain why next week but I believe that the seven letters to the churches in Asia Minor are prophetic and I believe they give a timeline or a chronology of church history so if that's true and it is <laughs> and we should be able to look at Laodicea and see what was said of Laodicea happening right now yep. and guess what yes. it's all going down right now well the only thing I have left to say after that is Jesus is coming soon amen, amen. Father we again are so thankful that we can look into your word and see uh, the claim proven that it's living and powerful we thank you, Lord, that you made this declaration all the way back 3,400 years ago that there was going to be a time where you scattered your people and there was going to be a time where you regathered them. 
And there was going to be a day when they all know you. And we've been watching this progression so wonderfully. And we thank you, Lord, that we live in such a time as this, where we can see these things unfold as undeniable proof that your word is alive. So we give you praise and honor. We pray for the peace of Jerusalem. We pray, Lord, that the people of Jerusalem and Israel would come to know the Prince of Peace who's going to rule from Jerusalem someday. And until then, Lord, we thank you for uh, giving us your word that we can map things out and see, uh, Lord, approximately where we are in the grand scheme of the timeline. We recognize we don't know a day or an hour, day or the hour of the rapture of the church, but we do know we ought to be looking up. So we thank you for the information we've gleaned tonight. Lord, help us uh, to give a defense to all those who would uh, attack Israel and be anti-Semitic in their theology. Help us to stand firm on the truth and uh, side with your chosen people and seek uh, to reach them with the hope of Jesus. So we thank you for our time again tonight. We pray these things in Jesus' name and all God's people said. Amen. Amen.